Welcome back to The Bunker Daily with me, Andrew Harrison. We hope you're enjoying the podcasts. If you're listening on Thursday the 11th of June, our live stream crossover with, with Romaniacs is on Zoom tonight. It's exclusive to Patreon backers. So if you want to see what our squalid back rooms look like, sign up as a Patreon supporter and we will see you there at 8 o'clock. On today's Daily, while the world has been preoccupied by coronavirus, one of its worst political and humanitarian catastrophes continues to unfold. The nine-year civil war in Syria has cost the region an estimated $530 billion, left 80% of its population living in poverty, and killed somewhere between 400,000 and 700,000 people. A peaceful uprising against Bashar al-Assad in 2011, following the Arab Spring, gave way to a multipolar conflict involving Islamic State and al-Qaeda, Hezbollah, Kurdish independence fighters, and Iran, amongst others. Russia launched an air campaign on Assad's side in 2015, carrying out indiscriminate bombing and numerous atrocities against targets it deems terrorists. And yet still, with 13 million people displaced and a refugee crisis which rippled out to influence elections in Europe and even Brexit, few people in the UK can say they understand more than a small part of what's going on there, including me, which is why I've asked the writer, filmmaker, former Lesbos coordinator for the charity Help Refugees, and social media advocate Oz Katerji, also incidentally host of the excellent podcast Corbynism and the Postmortem, to help me out. Hello, Oz. Thanks for doing the podcast. How are you? I'm very good, thank you. Thanks for having me on, Andrew. I've got to be open about my ignorance and the massive spread of inf- disinformation that's enveloped this conflict. Um, you simply don't know what to believe sometimes. And uh, so the first thing I wanted to ask you is, are you frustrated at the way this war has been pushed into the background? This is a massive conflict and the consequences are literally on our own streets in the form of refugees. That's a difficult one to to answer because it, it's not that there's any one thing that I can blame for that. You know, uh, human beings only have the capacity for so much attention and, and Syria has been going on for so long now that, you know, also the the uh the highest peaks of the violence in the conflict have have passed so there are other things you know mm. we're in sort of nominal ceasefire situation at the moment so it's understandable that other things uh, are taking priority in the in the news agenda um so i don't think i'm frustrated by that but uh touching on your point of disinformation i am frustrated by um the way misinformation has been handled by not just the press, but by society in general, think tanks, uh, you know, governments, so on. They've been influenced by uh, certain disinformation campaigns. So, uh, you know, that's been uh, a more pressing thing to deal with um, for journalists. Hmm. What, what What is the scale of this conflict just winding back? I mean, I, you know, I talked in terms of the, the casualty figures, which are themselves kind of hard to pin down. I mean, what, what is it comparable to in terms of regional conflicts? It's probably the largest uh, forced movement of humans uh, in in recorded history. Uh, well, the, half the population of Syria was was displaced already by by you know halfway through the last decade. In terms of the death toll, you know the UN gave up counting you know six years ago uh, or whatever four years ago. So we have this sort of rough death toll that people still bandy about, um, mm. you know, again, as, as you said, between the 400 and 700,000. But that doesn't include the hundreds of thousands of disappeared people that, um, you know, the regime kidnapped and, and, and you know, uh, we, we have evidence that they've been uh, torturing and murdering people in, in, in these death camps that they run. So the, the number could be far higher. You know, the, I, I know Syrian activists who put the number at over a million now. Uh, with the death toll 
Um, so it's just the scale is it's sort of it's difficult for human minds to even quantify that much uh, devastation and death. You mentioned that we're in a, a, a form of a sort of a ceasefire at the moment, or that the conflict is. I mean, is it is it possible to say that you know, Assad is, is is winning or has won, or at least that by maintaining his his presence there, that that is a form of victory for him? Yeah, I mean, it, if you put it like that, yes. I mean, look, Assad was losing the war heavily until the Russians stepped in to save him. Uh, as soon as the Russians stepped in, it was almost a foregone conclusion. You know, that war was just waiting for someone to step in and take control. The Americans never did. The EU, NATO, the UN Security Council, hampered by, by Russia, never did. They never came in and, and, and stopped the killing. Russia decided to come in and back Assad and escalate the killing to the point that they found tried to attempt to find a military solution. The situation today is that although Assad no longer has a significant territorial threat, you know, he hasn't got forces bearing in towards Damascus, um, he's sort of frozen the lines. You know, there's the, Syria split into three territories now, uh, one controlled by uh, the Kur- uh, Kurdish independent uh, forces and um, the United States, uh, in alignment with each other with some nominal cooperation, coordination with the regime in certain areas and uh, not in others. Uh, the Turkish-controlled uh, areas and uh, areas controlled by extremist opposition groups, it's a, if you look at the sort of map there, it's a territorial patchwork of which group controls which area. It's, it's a bit of a mess, you know, that that the opposition held Syria is, is, is quite lawless and quite difficult to, uh, to govern as a result. Uh, and then you've got regime-held territory, which is in coordination with, with Russia and Iran. Um, and again, you know, the regime doesn't have full control over this territory. There are areas that, that Iranian militias control. There are areas that, that uh, Russian uh, forces control. So, you know, it's really like a, a patchwork of different competing interests there uh, at the moment. in the gr- And on the ground now, um, since the coronavirus uh, uh, crisis uh, exploded into the public domain, there's been a sort of freezing of the conflict uh, in relative terms. There are still there were bombings yesterday, for example. Uh, several children were killed in, in Russian airstrikes. You know, the conflict isn't frozen. And, and when I use the word ceasefire, I don't want people to assume that there's no fighting happening. I just mean territorially, those lines are, 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 are in place at the moment due to an agreement between the Turkish and the Russian, uh, the Turkish government and the Russian government um, over a ceasefire that was made several months ago after Turkey intervened to try and stop the regime from pushing further and further into Idlib. We've seen news this week of, of kind of quite rare protest against Assad in regime held areas mm. and, and you know the uh, you know a growing food crisis coronavirus is is, is hitting Syria in you know it's it severely given the impoverished nature of the and the the great destruction in, in the area. I mean is is the arrival of protests within regime areas significant? I mean, they're significant in the sense that, you know, people should be more scared to protest than they are. But the areas that these these um, protests are happening in, while they are under de facto regime control, the milit- militias or, or, or armed groups currently occupying those areas aren't directly under the orders of Bashar al-Assad. You know, Sweda is a majority, Druze um, area 
which has its own militias and it has involvement with Russian um, Russian military. Uh, so therefore, you know, they have a degree of autonomy. So when they're out protesting against the regime, they're less worried about being picked up by, you know, local mukhabbarat and, and disappeared and tortured to death like so many Syrian activists before them. Not that, that there aren't arrests happening now of people that have been at those protests. There are, but there's, as I said, there's a, the regime's control of these areas isn't t- in total like it was, you know, in 2011. So yes, I, I think they're significant in a way, but we have to remember that it was the entire population that rose up against Bashar al-Assad in 2011. You know, these none of these uh, situations were solved in 2011. Assad just succeeded in sectarianizing the conflict and killing huge swathes of his population and, and depopulating huge swathes of territory. That's what he, he achieved but he didn't achieve any sort of resolution to the reason why people protest in the first place. Many people living in regime territory are, are terrified for their lives, terrified for the safety of their families. So, you know, I'm, I'm sure if they were, if they felt free uh, and liberated enough to protest, we'd see that all across Syria. You know, the, the revolution was something that was by the people for the people uh, and, and, you know, waves and waves and waves of disinformation uh, about the early days of that have continued ever since because delegitimizing the fact that the people wanted Assad gone was the very, you know, core of the sort of information, military information tactic to try and, you know, convince everyone that it was always an external, uh, you know, far-right Islamist plot when when that's simply not the case. Yeah. Well, one of the, one of the kind of widely held beliefs here, obviously, is, is that the, you know, the anti-government groups early in the conflict were, are, are all gone and were entirely supplanted by Islamist terror groups. Is there truth in that, that the, 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 the kind of initial anti-government groups were at least marginalised? Or is that yet another piece of misinformation? Oh, well, that, yeah, I mean, that's definitely true. Uh, we wouldn't ever uh, attempt to, to uh, mislead anyone with uh, about the state of the, the Syrian revolution today in the armed groups that 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 you know fly a revolutionary flag at the end of the day the people that fight these wars are, are syrians they're, they're syrian engineers syrian farmers syrian delivery men syrian you know and and to fight a war you need money you need guns you need ammo uh you need training um and who provides money and ammo and arms and you know who provides this stuff you can't win a war against an, a regular army without this stuff being provided for you. And over the course of, you know, the 2011, 2012, when Syrian army, you know, Syrian soldiers were were surrender, surrendering and saying, I, I, I don't want to be part of this, defecting and creating uh, what became known as the FSA, it is a world away from nine years later where, you know, most of those people that, that protested and, and left the army are dead or displaced or, or you know, in in hiding, or, or or you know, living in a dungeon. It's 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 hard to to sort of talk about those groups today, and and, and talk about the sorry. It's hard to talk about those groups back then in any way relation to the groups today because there is no direct connection. They got attacked and disbanded, and and so yeah, that today we have a patchwork of Turkish supported groups. And uh, you know groups that that are much more extremist in nature, uh, and they are fighting you know for control over even over the small bit of territory that that has in Idlib. People should not be 
with this war, people can't be looking for like someone to to show you that they are the pure good guy and they they mm. deserve your hundred percent. That's not how wars work, you know. As soon as there's a civil war, especially for many years, it all fragments into warlords and groups committing atrocities and and so on and so forth. That doesn't change the the ultimate goal of of, of what a political solution needs to look like, you know. And and ultimately, ultimately, for Syria to be at peace, these groups needs to be disbanded and disarmed. Um, so, you know, that, that's really what we should be talking about when we talk about, um, these groups is how to eventually disband and disarm them. Uh, and there are no easy answers for that at all. Uh, not without confronting the regime first anyway. Is it oversimplistic to say that the, the West simply abandoned Syria? I mean, for, you know, for a lot of us seeing Britain refusing to take military, it's, it's not, that's not oversimplistic. That's, that's not oversimplistic at all. It's, it's, it's what happened. And, and it, it's not the first time the West has sort of watched a situation of, of mass murder unfold and, and, and thought, oh, maybe it's better if we stay out of this. Uh, it, it, was, it was Obama's calculation, really, that staying out of this was the best thing to do. And, and I think it's been a terrible idea, even with the, the mess that's happened in Libya. And a lot of that has happened post-2011. The state of Libya is still in a in a better state than the state of Syria. You know, it still has more infrastructure. It still has, you know, currently it's also involved in a civil war, again, due to malign foreign interference. If you took the foreign parties out of Syria, the, the Syrian regime would have collapsed long ago. You know, the Syrian regime was propped up because it had support from Iran, Hezbollah, the Russian government, you know, vetoes from the Chinese and the Russians in the Security Council. It, it managed to to win the war by building allies. It didn't win the war by, you know, sort of having a legitimacy amongst its own people. It, it required heavy, heavy, heavy foreign influence and foreign investment. And look, that's that's the point. The West could have done something and they decided to do nothing and other people came in and decided they were going to do something. So, uh, yeah, the West has to bear responsibility for inaction as well as action. Well, into that space, an awful lot of, as you mentioned, a lot of disinformation has flowed. I mean, I've heard people arguing in all seriousness that the, the you know, the problems uh, and the, the, the carnage in Syria is caused by us bombing Syria. There is a yeah. belief that the West is bombing Syria. Uh, we've seen a, a load of disinformation, including things like the trashing of the white helmets. I mean, what kind of role has disinformation played in shaping the way this conflict is handled externally? It's it's played a massive role uh, because the weight of public opinion played a role in uh, stopping Britain and America from intervening. It, it was the weight of public opinion that, that made politicians hesitate. Um, and, and that public opinion was absolutely seized upon by the Russian government. Absolutely. In the, in the stories that they, in the lies and fabrications they told about uh, chemical weapons attacks, about the early days of the protests, you know, but, but this is the Russian government's, uh, you know, main, this is what they do, you know, this is their um, modus operandi. Essentially, like we, we saw it with MH17, with any atrocity they've committed, you know, annexing Crimea or, or invading Ukraine, they just deny it. They do it and they deny it and then they lie about it and they fabricate and falsify evidence. And they will find enough stupid people willing to defend them. And if they're not stupid in defending them because they're stupid, they'll find people that are willing to be paid to lie about this stuff. 
Um, and it's everywhere. And if you look at the MH17 trial happening right now, you know, investigators have proved this stuff. They've proved Russia lied and falsified evidence time and time again. So it's, it's yeah, it's part of winning an information war, part of winning the, the hearts and minds of the West. It, it, they don't even need people to be pro-Russia. They just need people to be so overwhelmed by the conflicting details that they think i can't be bothered to have an opinion about this it's too difficult as soon as they do that they've won you know if if you if you if you can't feel outrage about you know atrocities happening abroad then whoever's trying to cover up those atrocities or stop those atrocities becoming a problem uh for the people carrying them out they've already won if they can mm. prevent you from being outraged by confusion, they don't need to convince you that these things didn't happen. They just need to undermine them. Would a Biden presidency make any difference to the West's approach to Syria? I, I, I've seen very little to indicate. that There seemed to be a split between Obama and Hillary Clinton, and Clinton mm. did seem to recognise Obama's failure in Syria. Um, I'm not sure Biden was ever, you know, towards the Hillary camp on that. Um, hmm. I, I, I don't know. I mean, I've seen a couple of interviews by his, uh, his foreign policy advisors, um, you know, and it, it, there's there seems to be a clear sort of, we will never normalise this regime. But beyond that, it, it seems to be business as usual. And I, I, don't want, I don't want people to think that I'm saying that Trump and Obama have the exact same policy on Syria. There, there were differences. Obama clearly significantly cared more about human rights uh, and the loss of human life in Syria than the Trump administration does, which is evidenced by the, uh, you know, loosening the rules of engagement and their, their atrocious acts in, in, uh, in uh, Raqqa and uh, other parts of northern Syria, uh, in which they flattened entire, you know, residential neighbourhoods to, to defeat ISIS, uh, killing thousands upon thousands of civilians. And if you're interested in that, check out Air Wars, uh, the organization called air wars that have been tracking those deaths but obama also refused to do anything about chemical weapons whereas the trump administration struck the assad regime's facilities twice for doing so and there there have been there haven't been significant chemical weapons violations in syria since he did those things so there are differences in in approach of the two men but broadly speaking their their opinion has been that America, it's not America's job to overthrow the Assad regime. That is a, a policy that's continued from Obama to Trump. And I think Biden will probably say the same thing. I, I can't see anyone coming in now in 2020 and trying to overthrow Assad from some kind of external uh, military intervention. Um, I, I don't think that's going to happen. So that said, is there any solution to this, or are we sort of going to look at just a, a permanently frozen conflict into the indeterminate future? I, I think that's the wrong question to ask. It's not, is there a solution to it? It's, it's, it's what solution are we comfortable with? Either, either we're comfortable with Assad murdering a million people and, and, and butchering however many to, to try and take control of Idlib, or we're not. Either we want to do something about it to stop it, or we don't, you know? And if we do... That means taking some difficult options. It means, you know, destroying airfields. It means, you know, uh, putting Russian uh, uh, anti-aircraft out of service. It means doing, it means shooting planes out of the sky. It it means doing some quite serious things. Um, uh, So so the question isn't, you know, is there a solution? There is a solution. You know, the the constant... uh, 
excuse given was there's no military solution to the conflict. But that's not true. That And, and the Russians proved that. There always was a military solution to the conflict. Um, it, it's, it's that military solutions aren't alone. You need military track and a political track and an economic track and a cultural, social, you know, uh, contracts, you know, between the people. Th- these are things that, that can't be achieved by, uh, by an air force alone. Mm-hmm. But, you know, the question is, is there is there a solution? Yeah, but what 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 are you comfortable with? You know, mm. either more people are going to die. There's no there's no two ways about it. And 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 currently, the West has very little say in what's going on in Syria, other than the areas they currently occupy. You know, if if America fully withdraws from Syria, like Trump has tried to do several times, there will be no say. There will be no you know there will be no place for the West to do anything at all. We will abandon the entire situation to uh, to Russia, Turkey, and Iran, who who don't have the best interests of the Syrian people at heart. Never have done. Never, ever, ever have done. So, yeah, it's it's very difficult. I, I can't, I don't want to give, you know, I don't want people to walk away from this thinking, oh dear, you know, there's nothing that can be done either. Something can be done, but it, it means making difficult decisions uh, to protect human life. And, 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 the West in recent years has decided that it feels more comfortable with images of barbarity and refugee boats washed up on the shores of Europe uh, than it does with with a few tactical targeted airstrikes to to destroy uh, airfields. If that's what the West has decided, so I don't know how anyone can change their mind about that. You know, it's sort of you know what do I wish and what do what do uh, the Syrian people wish and what do what's the reality what's the pragmatic reality of what's going to happen? These are very different different answers, you know. Yeah, um, it, it's a complicated mess as, as most civil wars ultimately are. Just finally, then, what kind of a conclusion are Syrian people drawing about the world around them from this? I mean, when you look at at what's happening in America with police brutality. And you see the sort of overwhelming polling response to people, you know, supporting the act of torching a police station um, in response. Like, if you're Syrian, why would you not want to watch the whole world burn after what you've been subjected to? The most powerful nations on earth have have conspired at certain points to oppress and kill Syrians. And nobody has put Syrian civilians first. Nobody, not Obama, not Britain, not the EU, not Turkey, not Iran. Nobody, nobody, nobody has ever put Syrian civilians first, and and that's a problem. All I can say is, Syrian people see this. They are not, you know, ignorant of this fact. Um, they know that they've been abandoned and they feel abandoned. And, um, you know, there are solutions, but they require some very difficult decisions from uh, Western governments. And I don't think I've, I've seen nothing uh, to show any of these, you know, politicians coming through at the moment really, truly care about um, international human rights law in uh, in any kind of meaningful way. I think we're heading towards... An, an age of authoritarianism, a, a 20, uh, 21st century authoritarianism, um, you know, headed by the likes of Trumps and Bolsonaros and Netanyahu's and Assad's and Putin's. I, I think this is the future for the world. Um, and I think we're, 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 we're moving slowly away from the post-war liberal consensus, which, which is deeply, deeply worrying to me. It seems like the entire global order is sort of predicated on the fact that certain nations are too big and powerful to go to war and and you know 
that 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 seems like quite a lot uh, to gamble the uh, safety of an entire species on. To be honest with you, hmm. Oz, thank you so much for this. It's been fascinating. It's incredibly depressing, but it has been fascinating and hugely informative. Thanks for making time to talk to us. What's the What's the best place for our listeners to keep up on further developments in Syria that they can trust? Uh, well, there's a, a there's an organisation called Syria Direct that's doing some great stuff right now. So if you find them on Twitter with at Syria Direct, or that's syriadirect.org, uh, you can also follow me uh, at Ozkatagi on Twitter, and I'm always retweeting other great analysts and people to follow. So give me a follow and, and you'll find out more. Fantastic. Well, thanks very much. It's been ab- absolutely fascinating. And uh, listeners, remember, there's a new Bunker Daily on Mondays, Tuesdays, Thursdays and Fridays with the main panel show on Wednesdays. Uh, we hope you are finding the podcasts informative and useful. Thanks for listening and we'll see you soon. The Bunker Daily was produced and presented by Andrew Harrison. The assistant producer was Jacob Archbold and audio production was by me, Alex Reese. Theme tune by Kenny Dickinson. The Bunker Daily is a Podmasters production. Bunker Daily.